He was a morbidly obese surgeon destined for an operating table and an early death. Now he's a rebel MD who is fabulously fit and fighting to make America healthy again. This is Stay Off My Operating Table with Dr. Philip Ovedia. Welcome back to the Stay Off My Operating Table podcast with Dr. Philip Ovedia. I'm Jack Heald, Dr. O. Last time we went halfway through a paper called the medical misinformation mess. Uh, I was depressed as hell <laughs> when we finished. I'm hoping we, things get better uh, here in the second half. So let's pick it up where we, where we, la- where we left it. Uh, we're talking about this paper by John Ioannidis and three other authors published in 2017. He listed four major problems with the quality of healthcare research. And problem number three, most healthcare professionals lack skills to evaluate the reliability and usefulness of evidence. What? <laughs> Help me out here. Yeah. What's so, that mean? Well, you know, we uh, kind of left off uh, talking about how oftentimes physicians don't even, you know, read the full papers uh, when they are uh, going through the medical literature. And this is now pointing out that even when they do choose to read the full study, oftentimes they don't have the skills as physicians to really judge whether, you know, this study is a high quality study or not, and whether it's something that they should pay attention to. And, you know, again, I think this goes to the way that uh, physicians are being trained in our, uh, you know, current environment. And that, you know, we are largely trained to kind of follow guidelines. And oftentimes, you know, we are discouraged as physicians, especially when we're going through our education and our training from, you know, questioning a lot of things. Uh, And, you know, there are many examples Uh, In the history of medicine, you know, I'll I'll just say the modern history of medicine, uh, you know, even in the 20 years that, you know, I've been a physician of things that, you know, I was taught in medical school that perhaps ended up, you know, not being the uh, not being, you know, as dogmatic as, you know, I may have been led to believe. Right. And as physicians are going through the medical literature, um, you know, one of the things we talked about last time is that they need to be skeptical because much of the medical literature they're reading is not high quality and, you know, should not be used to to change the way that they're treating patients. Uh, And, you know, unfortunately, the skills to determine what parts of the medical literature are useful uh, are not something that's really widely taught, you know, during medical school. Well, I, geez, Louise. Okay. So let's talk about what makes, uh, is there a simple heuristic that you can use as a physician for determining the value or the quality of a study? Um, You know, I think that the kind of eight principles that they outlined when, uh, you know, back in problem number one, um, you know, about 
clinical research and it should address a real problem and it should be, you know, in proper context and it should be patient centered. It should be pragmatic. It should be, you know, of reasonable value and that it's transparent um, is probably a good heuristic for physicians to follow. Um, like I said, unfortunately, that's not something that we learn in medical school. Um, but, uh, you know, I think, I think that's a good, you know, outline, uh, well, for us that th those would be good criteria for most physicians to follow. And then I think as, you know, we're going through studies, um, it's important for physicians just to have, you know, at least a basic understanding of things like statistics to be able to at least judge, you know, whether the paper, whether the data, um, you know, really uh, supports the outcome that uh, that has been, you know, uh, gotten to in the uh, study. Does um, the data you know, support the conclusion? Yeah. Does, yeah. Does, so, I, you know, I consider myself very lucky. You know, one of the things that I did during medical school was work in uh, one of the research labs, you know, during my first couple of years of medical school, uh, I was in one of the surgical research labs. And I think that gave me, you know, a skill set to understand, you know, how research is done and how some of the data, um, you know, can be interpreted. Um, but understand that that's not something that most physicians do, you know, that that's kind of something that yeah. you need to do extra on your own. And, you know, there's one thing that really stuck with me from my days in the lab. Uh, I worked with a, uh, a uh, postdoctoral um, researcher, uh, and he had a, a great saying. And uh, he, he was, you know, from the UK. He was English. So this, this sounds even better in a proper English accent, which I can't do. Uh, but his saying was, you know, statistics should be used like a drunk man uses a light post for support, not enlightenment. Mm. And basically what that means is that, you know, if authors, what, you know, if you're reading through a research paper and, you know, the conclusion isn't real obvious from the data to begin with and only becomes obvious when they go through a bunch of statistical manipulation of the data. Mm that's a conclusion that you should be very suspicious of. The authors uh, note the history of, of Vioxx um, in, this, in this subsection of the paper. Right. Uh, and they talk about, they said, when practicing clinicians cannot distinguish between valid and false results, they are at risk of delivering useless treatments or worse, harming their patients. So Vioxx uh, was released onto the market in the, I want to say the early part of this century. Um, and there was, well, it, was, it, it, it went through all the appropriate trials, the papers, blah, blah, blah. And in fact, the data from the trials showed that there was an increased risk of myocardial infarction. Is that a heart attack? Yes. There was an, that, that people who used, who were, who were given Vioxx had a fourfold increase risk of suffering a heart attack from, as compared to uh, a control from called naproxen. 
Um, it, it was plainly showed in the trial. However, the peer reviewers, the editors, and the readers of the New England Journal of Medicine accepted the, the author's argument that naproxen was cardioprotective. In other words, the data was even there. It was there to say, hey, this thing's a problem. And nobody, not, not even the, the peer reviewers or the editors, let alone the readers, caught it until millions of prescriptions were written. And I guess physicians trusting this, this alleged research uh, poisoned their patients. Yay. Yay. Okay. So I, it sounds like one, one thing that ought to be happening is um, as a patient, if a, if a physician says to me, here's my, here's what, what, here's the treatment that I recommend. Um, if there's any kind of surgical or, or chemical intervention that he's advocating, we need to ask detailed questions. Where does this information come from? Has this been proven not just in trials, but also across a broad population without negative results? Um, what are the questions should we be asking our physicians? Yeah, I think, you know, it. I advocate that people, you know, ask their physicians, you know, what are you basing this decision on? And, you know, what kind of you know, benefit uh, should I reasonably expect from this treatment and what kind of risks are associated with this treatment? Um, and I think those are, you know, just some important basic questions that a lot of times physicians themselves, you know, have not asked about those treatments. You know, yeah. they, they are just uh, presented to the physicians as, you know, this is what the evidence suggests. Uh, these are the guidelines. And we need to do a better job of questioning, you know, where those guidelines are coming from and what is the data behind them. And I think for both physicians and patients, uh, you know, that skepticism is a good, uh, you know, skill, a good angle to kind of come about these things at. And, you know, I think that kind of leads us into problem four in the paper uh, very well. Problem four patients and families frequently lack relevant, accurate medical evidence and skilled guidance at the time of medical decision-making. Yeah, that kind of follows directly from the previous three, doesn't it? Yes, yes. So, um, you know, I, I think, you know, this is an important thing for us to understand, uh, you know, and again, it doesn't mean that we should just say we're not going to take any treatment. Uh, because obviously that's not, you know, going to be the correct answer. Uh, it just means that we need to carefully consider. Um, we need to do a better job in medicine of considering the treatments that, you know, we are recommending as physicians and that patients and their family members are accepting, uh, you know, as treatments. They, they make a point here. The authors make a point here. Um, that, that I think unpacks this problem in a way that, that should make it very relevant to our listeners. I'm just going to read the first sentence in, in problem four. P 
people are bombarded with medical news stories, television and radio talk shows, social media, pop culture magazines, spurious websites, direct-to-consumer drug and medical device ads, hospital marketing messages, and other media sources, much of which are incomplete or wildly inaccurate. Yeah, and it's I think- not just that the doctors haven't been educated to separate the wheat from the chaff. It's that the chaff gets amplified through a million different channels. And we don't have anybody who can say, these are really bad studies. Yes, I think, you know, this is sort of a uh, modern issue, you know, that has magnified the problem. Um, Many, you know, many of us might remember that it wasn't all that long ago that, you know, pharmaceuticals in particular or medical procedures couldn't be advertised on TV Uh, or, you know, they they were uh, only, you know, limited advertising, you know, perhaps in some, you know, uh, magazines or something like that. Uh, right. But for the most part, the general public didn't get exposed to the um, sort of promotion of medical treatments. You know, that was done within the medical community. And, you know, that was also more regulated within the medical community. Um, but despite that, you know, we all know very famous examples of where this has gone wrong. You know, the the nine out of 10 doctors recommend whatever brand of cigarettes that was, you know, common uh back in the you know 1950s or so 1960s before the dangers of smoking were uh revealed um is a very you know public example of how we oftentimes get these things wrong uh but i think it's certainly the problem is amplified when you know a medical study will get published these days and that study will then get sort of picked up on by the you know mainstream media and it will get spun in a certain way uh, that may or may not be actually supported by the by the study itself. So I think this becomes an, another uh, aspect of the problem that uh, people are facing today. Well, I think this is a good time to take a little bit of a of a of a left turn here and advocate that people. Uh, learn, make it a priority to learn to curate the information that's coming to you and create for yourselves a network of people whose, whose insight and wisdom and skills you actually trust. Um, so when it comes to, to medical information, the appropriate approach is skepticism about virtually everything that's reported and what you need to do is is get involved in a network of people whose reliability has been proven over time so i'm going to uh, i'm going to advocate then uh that folks contact you i'm going to advocate that folks go to ovadiaharthealth.com and get connected with you so that they have a, a reliable source of of medical information is that okay if I do that here on the on the show? 
That would be just fine. But yeah, I think that's a very important, uh, you know, concept for us to wrap up on. And, you know, something we've talked about uh, extensively and, and I talk about, uh, you know, as I'm, you know, talking to people out there is that, you know, you need to take an active role in your health and you need to find partners within that journey uh, that are doing the same. And, you know, be skeptical find the physicians who are skeptical out there. And there are plenty of good physicians out there. It just takes some effort to find them as opposed to letting the system kind of find them for you, you know, which is what most people do as they approach the medical system. They just sort of, you know, passively accept whatever the system is giving them. And that is not good enough these days. And I think that's a great way to wrap it up. I agree. Uh, quick question. Is this an article that folks can find online? Medical uh, Yeah, I think yes. if you just, you know, look up, uh, just Google the title, how to survive, how to survive the medical misinformation mess. Uh, you should be able to find it pretty easily. And it, it's, uh, you know, published. Uh, th- there's a free PDF of it uh, that Excellent. anyone can uh, find this article. Great. And we'll link that in the show notes. All right. Well, for Dr. Philip Ovedia, this is the Stay Off My Operating Table podcast, and we'll talk to you next time. Chances are you wouldn't be listening to this podcast if you didn't need to change your life and get healthier. So take action right now. Book a call with Dr. Ovedia's team. One small step in the right direction is all it takes to get started. Contact us at ifixhearts.com slash talk. That's ifixhearts.com slash talk.